Hi, I'm Sam Patterson, and this is Beyond the Hour of Code, the podcast that looks at how we can use programming instructionally in everyday lessons to let kids, you know, learn more, have more fun. It's also just a great way to learn with students, from young students to much older students. Today, we're going to be talking about programming for pre-readers. This is episode four. A lot of the material comes directly out of chapter four of my book, Programming in the Primary Grades, Beyond the Hour of Code by Roman and Littlefield. Thanks for joining us for this fourth episode of Beyond the Hour of Code. All episodes are available on beyondthehourofcode.com. Please subscribe to the podcast at beyondthehourofcode.com forward slash iTunes. When we look at programming for pre-readers, it's really a very new field. Because until not too long ago, programming was very literacy dependent, but there are now many, many different tools and strategies for allowing students who are not yet reading to program meaningfully on tablets, on computers, and even using offline programming. The basic reason that I'm a big advocate for programming with pre-readers is that when students are programming if they're working in the foos or they're working in Codable or they're solving puzzles in Tinker, they're practicing the sequencing that really is an essential cognitive skill for them to be ready to read. So on a very basic way, programming can help our students become more ready to read, which is really exciting to me as a teacher who's dedicated his professional study to literacy but ended up working in technology, when I find these places where they overlap so nicely, I really want to exploit them. So the question we're faced with is if our youngest students who aren't yet reading can get more ready to read by programming, how else can we create opportunities in programming to give kids the skills they need to be readers. When you're programming with pre-readers, one of the first considerations isn't what app should I buy, what tablet should I use, what tool should I use. It's what do my students need and what do my students respond to. The goal is to take lessons we're already doing and find meaningful ways to add programming as kind of another layer of cognitive complexity. So the first thing you want to look at are your learners, your learning space, the resources you have available. This doesn't involve a major investment of time or technology. We can do meaningful offline programming. But if you have tablets, you could start looking at apps like the Foos, Scratch Junior, Codable, and to some degree Tinker, but it's got text in it. The first ones, the Foos, Codable, and Scratch Junior are really my go-tos because of their text-free programming environment. And all of those are available in multiple platforms. I know that both the Foos and Scratch Junior are available on the Amazon tablet. So if you're using those in your classroom, that's available to you. As well as, I think they all have web versions and Android and um, iOS. As a teacher, when we're planning, we want to know how long is a lesson. And it really depends on the kids in front of you. I've had some students in kindergarten at the, at the beginning of the year, they're ready for about 20 minutes of programming and tech time. Other students at the beginning of the year, they're ready for 45 plus minutes of programming and tech time. Um, depending on what other skills we're trying to teach, 
we really can limit the length of the lesson. Uh, don't, you know, I, I love challenge, but I don't like pointless frustration. So I love creating situations where my students are challenged to figure something out and giving them the room to kind of figure it out and allowing them to work together. But there's a big difference between that and giving them something too hard to do and too long to do it in. So, um, you know, maximize return by paying attention to engagement and frustration levels and, you know, teaching perseverance and grit is one thing. Having them have a very unrewarding experience where they feel like they don't know anything is totally another. So it's really about just kind of maintaining that class vibe. What does programming actually look like with pre-readers? Um is a very important question. It's one we have to think about when we're planning a lesson. Is this 24 students, 30 students sitting each with their own tablet doing their own thing? Are we looking at paired programming where we take two students and put them on a single tablet? It's one of my favorite ways to do things. I'll call it under-deploying tech um, strategically, right? We can be one-to-one, but really if what we want to teach are things like communication and sharing and what we hope to do is maybe disrupt the knowledge economy in the classroom and allow the students to see that their classmates understand things at a different rate than they do and they can all work together um making them work together is really important later in the year we may do paired programming where they each have their own ipad but they're still buddied up and working together but especially at the beginning of the year what programming looks like is a group activity or a paired activity We can do this with tablets. We can do this offline. We can do this with robots. Um, And we're going to talk briefly about each of those. Because it's kind of my wheelhouse where everything started and where I've talked to app developers the most, I want to start with thinking about uh, programming on tablets. Specifically, um, I started with iPads. I think each of these is available on Android also. Tablet-based programming, um, especially when you're thinking of starting from an hour of code model, starts with a lot of problem-solving games. And these problem-solving games can be great for developing basic understanding of programming and computer science and understanding of computer science concepts, the limit to these leveled apps is the fact that you can't do much with them. Like they're set up by software engineers and the kids are either solving them or they're not. So you end up doing a lot of kind of lesson design outside of the app when that's the case. So you that's where you end up talking to students about sharing and problem solving and reflection and you know, introducing different aspects that can shape that learning into something other than putting a student alone on an iPad to play a game. Um, It's important when we use these apps that are designed for individual instruction that we go to the trouble of crafting that learning experience to the point where we're not just giving a kid an iPad and putting them on it and having them play the game because that's by itself not education. Uh, We need some sort of intervention there, whether it's working with another student, which is my favorite. I like working with another student, having the teacher occasionally check in because the teacher can't be present for 24 students simultaneously. So app-based programming is definitely one way you can do this. Again, they're short lessons, 25 minutes of on-app programming time, pretty much tops. Um, Even with a variety of challenges, they'll move a number of levels during that time. And most of them will be ready to be done. Some of them might be super excited. Um, Some of the apps now have different 
types of interactions within them. So the foos, for example, my students enjoy the problem-solving aspect of it for about 12 to maybe 20 minutes, but there's a game builder part of the app that allows them to design their own video game levels. I wouldn't say it's programming per se, but it's very interesting in the world of creative expression because the students love building their own video game levels and they also love sharing those with each other. So they can stand for a lot more engagement with that, but that's not strictly programming. So when you're planning with the foos, you need to have some experience with what it does and what's in there and make good decisions about how you're using it. My favorite programming with my pre-readers is offline programming. And offline programming usually looks like a bunch of us standing in a room with all the furniture cleared out of the way and we're dancing. And I write dance commands on the board using arrows and then we uh, we follow those dance commands and we dance. Uh, episode 3 of the podcast Beyond the Hour of Code was about programming and dance so I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about it here but dance is totally totally awesome. Uh, quick fact check break. Episode 3 was about programming the power of dance. We're not going to go on about that here but you can also use offline programming to have the students design a program that gets them from their seat to the door from your classroom to the music classroom. You can use programming to talk about the sequence of things they should do right while they're in the hallway. Uh, You can set up classroom routine and expectations kind of in the language of programming because programming really is about reaching a common understanding about what symbols mean and then doing what that language says. So there's a lot of connections that we can make offline. Beyond that, the real pedagogical pay dirt is in open studio apps like Scratch Junior. Scratch Junior allows teachers to build a four-panel learning experience that the students can program their ways through. Right now I'm doing some really exciting work with a school in LA who's adopting Writer's Workshop and one of the ways that students are publishing texts is by creating computer programs of those texts in Scratch Junior. So Scratch Junior is an open studio app that we'll talk a lot more about. I've got a resource page already launched for that so you can check that out under the quick start and it has a video specifically on designing digital learning experiences kind of starting from your own learning goals and moving forward. So you can check that out on beyondthehourofcode.com. What I want to close out this uh, show with is talking a little bit about robots and pre-readers. Because the challenge with programming with pre-readers is finding programming interfaces where literacy isn't a barrier to creative expression in that interface. And the options for programming robots that are text-free are limited. I currently use most often Sphero's draw and drive interface, which reminds me a lot of an Etch-a-Sketch. If the Etch-a-Sketch was actually the remote control for a robot, you draw a line that moves from you away, the robot will follow that line. If it's aimed correctly, it'll follow the angle vector on that line. You've got some pretty good control. And I have the students play a game I call Robot Bochi Ball, where they're actually sitting all outside of a giant blue tape circle with a smaller yellow tape circle in the middle. They're 
robots are only allowed inside of the blue tape. It's a robot-only zone. And the robot-only zone makes it into all of my robot lessons now because it makes it a lot easier for the students not to be in each other's way when there is a very clearly defined robot-only zone. But the students, using draw and drive, program the robot to move from the outside of the circle into the yellow circle and back. Not super complex, but you can, if you pair them up, two students, we're talking kindergarten age, two students, give them about 15-20 minutes they can do a whole lot of things with this. And then it starts getting silly as they actually get comfortable with the controls. And that's usually when I bring the lesson down and we'll either transition to something else or be done for the day. The Wonder Workshop folks have these two super cute robots, Dash and Dot. And they have a path app where students draw a path and drag commands onto that path. And it is almost it's more along the line of a model of um state-based programming which they do some more of later and we don't have to get into that specifically here but basically they draw a path that dash is going to follow and they say okay at this point in the path he's going to make a race car sound later on he's going to make a horn sound and then he's going to make a you know peeling out sound and say whoopee uh, it's a lot of fun. They put the commands on the line. The robot roughly follows the direction of the line, but it does the commands in order flawlessly. So that's really the benefit there. I haven't used that one in class as much simply because I don't have, I have five of the dash and dot robots. And most of what I do in class, I need at least six working groups to get the group work small enough for everyone to have a meaningful role. And since those robots are just controlled by iPads, I really try to get the groups to two. So I use Dash and Dot with my after-school pre-readers, not necessarily as part of the entire curriculum in class. Well, that brings us to the close of what I'm calling a quick overview of Chapter 4. It's one of my longest chapters in the book. Um, so there's a lot more detail there. And there's more support and resources on beyondthehourofcode.com. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next time for Chapter 5, Episode 5.